welcome to School Psych Podcast. Really excited tonight for this will be a really good conversation, I think. Um, my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist working in Maryland. Uh, before I pass it over to Eric, who's going to introduce our guests, I'm going to, um, we're down Rebecca tonight, as you can see. She's uh, traveling right now, so we, we miss her, and, and she'll get to kind of tune in maybe later and, and do some commenting and things like that. So um, so I'm going to tell everybody how to participate. So you can participate using, on Twitter using hashtag psych podcast. You can also send uh, a message to uh, the Facebook uh, School Psych Podcast page. Um, and we'll also, you can comment, the probably the easiest way is right on YouTube. If you're watching through YouTube and you're, and you're signed in, it'll allow you to comment and that'll let us kind of flash some of the comments here up on the screen. So for sure, um, do that as you see fit. But I'm going to pass it over to Eric. Eric. All right. Thanks, Rachel. Well, I'm excited to have our guests with us tonight. They are uh, pros we've had on in the past and enjoyed conversations with them. Um, quickly, before we get started, we do have a sponsor and uh, we're going to just read a little short blurb from our sponsor, um, Med Travelers, who are really about um, placing school psychologists in jobs. So, if we're all school psychologists here and some of us need jobs, um, check out Med Travelers. Um, Med Travelers is, um, we're proud to par partner with them. They're an industry leader for staffing school psychologists in districts nationwide, offering the advantages of W-2 employment status, along with full health insurance coverage and 401 retirement options. Uh, Med Travelers is a true advocate for career success. To learn more about med travelers and to discover ways that they can help you succeed in your school psychology career, visit medtravelers.com forward slash school psyched exclamation point. So uh, check them out if you are school psychologists looking for employment. Well, so we have uh, Dr. Stefan Dombrowski and Dr. Ryan McGill with us this evening. And if you've seen them in the past on our podcasts or read their articles or book chapters, um, you know that they always have a lot of really interesting things to say. And so we have uh, Dr. Dombrowski teaches at uh, Ryder University and Dr. McGill at William and Mary, I think, if I remember correctly. Um, and uh, we want to talk a little bit about science in a post-fact era and talk about um, social media. And uh, I think the discussion kind of has a number of trails we can wander down. Um, but I uh, want to just turn it over to you both. And uh, maybe Ryan, if you'd like to start us off, um, welcome to you both. And we're happy to have you here. Well, thank you for having us. Um, I guess the easiest way to start this all off is, is in terms of like what got us to this point in terms of like, you know, being interested in, in these topics. And I think the first thing was was a natural extension of our research in terms of assessment and evidence-based assessment. And so much of our work and, and our colleagues' work has been on evaluating, you know, how school psychologists have, you know, use tests and practice, how they interpret them, and potential discrepancies between those practices and, and how we were taught to do things and 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 what the evidence-based literature is sort of bearing out or has bared out for the last, you know. 80 plus years. And, and so it, it naturally sort of begets the question, which is, um, so if that's the case, and, and we're supposed to espouse a scientist practitioner model of school psychologists, then, then what's, sort of, what's sort of going on here? And what are the factors beyond getting out of our soapbox and sort of getting into the, 
you know, training issues and, and the literature issues and, and what folks are being taught. And it, it, it you know, and I think in this particular time for a lot of various reasons, um, as we're in sort of a unique space, not only in school psychology, but just in society writ large in terms of information dissemination, and we're having to confront all these different technologies for the first time that are now emerging, and they are emerging in school psychology. They're here, Twitter, so, you know, Facebook has been around for years. Um, how does that maybe change the game? And what are some of the potential, you know, positives of that? What are some of the potential negatives? And and just going in with eyes wide open. And how do these things kind of intersect and, and play? And and like Eric said, there's there's a lot of there's a myriad ways we can tackle this issue. And 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 I'm certainly not expert in all of them, but I mean, it gets into issues with the replication crisis and really how we view science. And so when we say the scientist practitioner model, I think the question that I had, and Stefan and I have had tons of discussions over the last year and a half about, is just you know what does that mean in today's era? You know, um, this idea that that when we tell people to just go read journal articles and, and you'll be inoculated, um, I, I think it is not very useful. And so trying to unpackage some of the reasons sociologically why that is. Yeah, I, that reminds me, too, like I was I, I'm on Facebook and I'm pretty active and sometimes I get into little little snippy arguments. And, I've seen. And I'll, I've seen. <laughs> and I will post, you know, uh, post an article or something to be like, here, this is what I'm trying to say. And that, that never you know, changes anyone's mind. It never, you know, I am sure that they don't even read the article. It's just, well, my opinion is, or you can say that, but, you know, there's, uh, I, I know this because, you know, this happened to me type of thing, anecdotal stuff. Um, that it, it, Science doesn't necessarily, yeah, change minds, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, I think the thing we want to be clear at the jump is like, I don't want to speak for Stefan, but we're not espousing any kind of, you know, platform that we have some kind of monopoly on truth or anything like that. It's just a matter of like, you know, we're supposedly trained as scientists and we're just sort of seeing these things and this is our N equals one or N equals two view, if you will. But um, I do think you, you raise an interesting point, Rachel, which is, um, you know, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Yik Yak or whatever the, the next technology is going to be. Um, I think we need to understand how, you know, and again, I didn't really get it, you know, any real sense into this until I started working with Ryan Farmer on the EBSP page and really got to see Facebook behind the scenes. Um, and, and that was kind of like an eyes wide open moment for me, which is, I mean, these are really socially engineered technologies. And to your point, um, I think the reason why, and again, going back to my experiences, I think I've talked in a previous podcast about this with just the profile analysis stuff on various Facebook pages and like, God, it seems like it gets really, it goes from one to 10 really quickly. Like, why is that? Well, that's the way these, these technologies are designed to like balkanize people. And, and I, again, I'm not, I'm not, I want to be clear. I'm not anti-social media or whatever. I just think people need to understand that when they enter into the space, it is a different way of interfacing with knowledge and and it's it's designed in in almost some ways to balkanize us so i think if if the desire is for us to get to a point of you know where the, the traditional scientific maxim of this idea that everyone has different viewpoints but in the reality truth wins it just may take some time to get there 
Um, I think I think some of these technologies have maybe thrown a wrench in that. And and the, one of the books I read, which is a really good sort of survey in terms of like social network analysis and kind of how this all works out, um, was the Misinformation Age by two two scholars at Yale, and and they kind of talked about like um, traditionally when we only had sort of you know page media and that was the way you got information that was how things would work out like you you always have had people believing in fringe and controversial ideas you know since the dawn of time the idea was as though they were fringe and and so as people made contact with you know the vetted literature whether that was traditional media or the, whether that was a journal article or, or whatever it happened to be that eventually people recalibrated and we got to this point of equilibrium. That was a the point they talked about a lot, which was you know, the whole point of this sort of discourse is to get to a point of equilibrium. And it takes some people longer to get there than others. But um, one of the things they concluded was the way that social media works and the way that we're interfacing with that on a day to day level. And now in school psychology, that's becoming part of our zeitgeist. I mean, it's, we have, dozens upon dozens of Twitter pages and Facebook pages and people are going to those for information. People need to understand those are, that's, those are not real feeds. So what you're getting and what, one of the, the questions that I had, um, and maybe this is a useful jumping off point was just, why do I keep getting threads on profile analysis? I mean, it seems like when you look at some of these pages, there's so much more going on there than that. And yet I only get this every single day was well, designed to do that because I'm more likely to respond to that. And so what that does is it basically, it, it, it sort of creates this illusion, number one, that there's way more of a bridge to gap than there actually really is. But then more importantly, number two, it actually, it actually tribalizes people. And so you can see this in the discourse. And this is my big fear is everything, everything becomes tribal. We talk about off air in terms of science of reading, whether it's profile analysis or this, that, or the other, it's everything now. And it's here in school psychology. And so I, I just think that we need to, to, you know, kind of take a step back and really kind of understand in this new age, as we're moving forward, the cat's already out of the bag. You know, how is this potentially influencing how we get information and how do we orient to that as, as practitioners, as scientists? I mean, I read the same pages as everybody else. So I think that's kind of the crux of, of the conversation today. I think also like the speed at which it happens plays a big yeah. role because you know, you're, and you're able to just pull out your phone when you're in the grocery store or whatever and, and respond kind of off the cuff. I was watching um, The Crown the other night and it, it, you know, so back it, they would try and get on the phone call and you had to take, you know, two hours to get a hold of somebody who's off in some other country. And, you know, it's just the, the, the rate of speed of which information could spread, uh, you know, nowadays it's just amazing um, how fast. And so it's right in your face immediately and you can respond immediately. And that's not always. Yeah. I mean, the scale of these technologies is unbelievable. And I mean, that's a testament to the innovators. I mean, that's, that's, we've never seen anything before like this and that's, that's for good. That's for bad. Um, so there's a lot of positives that come with that. And, and so there's a lot of communication going on in so-called academic Twitter about how do we leverage these technologies to get information to the, you know, the folks out there and get beyond some of these paywalls and, and, and journal barriers and things like that. 
And so, you know, I'm hopeful that some of the discussion today will talk about some of the, the pluses and minuses with that. But, you know, that's a positive, right? I mean, I could, I could, I could publish, Stefan could publish an article, we could publish an article, and we could tweet about it, and it gets out to thousands of people in, in 10 seconds, right? And that is a reach that pales in comparison to anything you could do as a traditional scholar. So that that comes with so basically it's it's a it's a flattening of not only the knowledge production process but also the barriers to entry and 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 raising that point I'm sort of mindful of I don't want to get into like a you know, Ryan supporting a gatekeeper no I get it like you know we've got some issues we got to deal with in terms of open science but um, we we also need to understand the potential you know drawbacks of that and and I think what we've seen you know contemporaneously in terms of stuff outside of school psychology is. You know, sometimes we leap onto these things and we really don't understand the full the full scope of, of what can happen when we uncritically embrace these things and, and use them, I think more importantly, as a portal to disseminate knowledge. Yeah, so many good, um, I- interesting thoughts there. You know, um, the paywall piece and uh, disseminating research, you know, um, before. I'm just thinking uh, as uh, what Rachel was saying made me think of something as well, though. Um, we often react, you know, uh, kind of going back to Ryan's tribalism comment. Um, you know, when I read something on Facebook or if I'm, you know, you know, one more profile analysis, ugh, you know, is my typical response or where are we going with this or why? Um, and you can see what happens. You know, I typically don't respond to those, but you see, you know, some people are like, yes, it's definitely this diagnosis. And other people are like, what are you doing? And then when it, when it sort of all funnels down after everybody's, you know, let off a little steam and, um, you know, somebody finally says, this is the way we have to do it in my district or in my state. And I don't have a whole lot of choice, you know? And, and so we do, we kind of back into our corners, right. And, and put the walls up a little bit and, um, so in some respects, we have a lot of freedom, you know, a lot more connectivity, a lot more um, networking opportunities, a lot more um, outreach to other people and connection to other people. And in, and in some ways, too, um, we're only open to certain things, I guess, is what I'm, I'm and trying I to I also think that um, if I can jump in here, too, yeah. you, you mentioned uh, just decorum or a lack thereof sometimes with with twitter and posts um and th- there's a noted phenomenon the online disinhibition effect john Suler, uh, he's actually a colleague of mine at Ryder university it's a pretty highly cited um article and he talks about that and there are positives and negatives to that um people feel free to kind of share their opinions whether impulsively or not thinking oh i'm kind of writing a diary to myself and, and they're really not and that can have positive effects for adolescents questioning their identities, et cetera. Um, so, so, so not all of, you know, as Ryan has emphasized over and over, not all of uh, social media, the internet is negative, but, but um, that's just touching upon kind of a side aspect. It's an interesting um, tangential issue that, that folks want to explore if they can. What I think the issue too, is when we talked about post fact or post truth, you know, I, I spent a lot of time kind of reading and preparing for this podcast. And it was like, well, what is what is post-truth? Like, what does that mean? And there's a lot of disagreement about this in the philosophical literature. But um, one of the books I read was was kind of interesting. And it kind of talked about, you know, 
it's really important when you begin these conversations to talk about when we talk about post-truth, we're not meaning that like facts are dead, like facts don't exist, like you know, reality. And again, there's so many caveats in these conversations. You know, the uh, the allure of objective reality is has never been realized in science, and it never will be. Um, but it's it's sort of like Churchill said about democracy. It's sort of like the the, the best of the worst, you know, uh, models that we have. And there's and there's no debate about the, the the progress that's created, but there there are issues that we have to deal with, and certainly some of that is you know gets into the the issues of the moment and 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 longstanding issues in our field about you know representation and whose voices are heard and who who's the gatekeeper for those, and those have been some very um, pointed conversations, um, not only in school psychology but psychology writ large. Um, and, and I don't have a satisfactory answer on those, but other than to acknowledge that those are real and, and, and those are issues that we have to face. Um, but I think the thing that's, that's, that's sort of interesting about all of this is it gets kind of into that issue of, you know, da Daniel Willingham, for those of you that haven't read his book about um, basically distinguishing between fads and, and education. And he has a really nice sort of like, I love the way he writes in terms of like just really easy sort of things to take away as a practitioner. And one of the things he says is, is that, you know, sometimes we can fall prey to this sort of seductive idea of, of every idea has equal validity and, and um, in, in the guise of being fair and partial. And so this gets into some of the ways in which the media works. And again, um, you know, my mom's a reporter, so I, I speak of what I know of. Um, you know, the way that we do media now is, is we always have to have a counterpoint to whatever idea is thrown out there. And I think part of that has been internalized with us as a profession, you know, not only, and this is not unique to school psychology, it's just, it's society, it's everything. And, and there are certainly things that are debatable in terms of, we don't have a firm understanding on things. And so there's multiple viewpoints in terms of uh, try to, to get at that, you know, little T truth of, you know, whether we'll discover that or not. But, but there's some things that are settled. And so when someone comes on and, and has some crackpot theory or wants to espouse a fad, it's like, well, you, you don't get equal say in that. Um, when you're trying to say some discredited theory of like, say, reading instruction is useful when in reality we have tons of data to show that it isn't. Um, and, and I would argue more importantly, as we've talked about before, you know, the social validity data of what actually is going on in the schools. Right. So, you know, do we give that person the same platform as, as we do other people? And, and again, I mean, that gets into all kinds of issues, who's deciding the platform, like all kinds of stuff. But I think, I think the issue is, as we're talking about like social media is that buried entry is gone. So on the one side, you get the information out to the people at scale. That's great. Um, you get diversity of viewpoints in most circumstances. That's great. But you also have to contend with the fact that then because you have such a wide barrier to entry, or in some cases, no barrier to entry, you're also letting in a lot of bad ideas, too. And so that gets into like the social psychology of information dissemination, which is it would be simple if we just simply were able to recognize something that was true and factual and whatever that was proven and we would go with that. But the reality is this is a really, really fascinating space. I am fascinated by this space as, as a psychologist because I have witnessed personally, and this is anecdotal, but there is a different social psychology. I think Rachel and Eric, you were kind of talking about that 
to this point about it's just a different interaction and the normal rules don't apply. And so part of my sort of just putting my psych hat on outside of school psychology has been trying to understand this. Like, why is that? Like, what is it about this medium that produces these kind of interactions? And so, you know, one of the things that I find really fascinating is I was at, I was presenting at a conference in Atlanta several years ago and some experimental social psychologists were talking about the illusory truth effect. And this idea that even when we know something's false, the more times we're exposed to it, we will eventually accept it as true, even when we know it's not real. And, and so that sort of begets the whole paradox of the scale thing, which is that can work against you because, you know, how do you combat that? On the one hand, you can produce as many articles as you possibly can. And I would argue in today's age, there's, there's no article that's going to debunk some of these, you know, prevailing thoughts, not only in our field, but in psychology writ large. And, and so again, this technology is here. How do, how do we as trainers, as academics acclimate to that and understand it? And I'm not sure that, that we really have a full grasp on that. Um, I see a lot of people kind of spinning their wheels and there's sort of one reaction. And I'll finish up on this point is that, you know, some people say, well, it's Twitter, it's whatever, just ignore it, who cares? And my argument is it's here, it's having an impact. So you might as well try to understand it and interact with the space because you know, people are here seeking information. And, and if we don't get that in terms of trying to get information out there, I think we're really missing the boat. And I, and I, and this gets into open science and all that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I also think, uh, I'm probably the the old guy in the group, um, and uh, and just thinking in terms of when this stuff has entered my world and impact that it's had. But I think about the new generation of people who never had this stuff, you know. So as a kid in the '70s, I was outside all day long. We didn't have video games, you know. Uh, television was limited. We only got four channels or whatever, you know. And and in the eighties, you know, you had the kids watching MTV all day long and Nickelodeon and all these other things that opened up. And now I think in, in a similar respect, we have kids who are, um, their whole social life, younger people now, uh, is, you know, engaged in social media in some way or another. Um, and of course, all these new platforms, as you mentioned, Ryan. Um, so I, I think of, um, the challenge that we have, I, I guess, I think of, you know, older folks in their fifties um, in the field, trying to um, not, not only keep up with the technology, but harness it in a way that we can uh, use it to, you know, to teach appropriately and to keep uh, as much truth as we see in the field or as much validated um, uh, practices and best practices and, um and it's interesting because I think it's just a new sort of breed of kid coming up today um, that sees this technology in a, in a whole different light than I do and utilizes it in a very different way. So um, it's it's I just find it fascinating to sort of because I'm sort of backpedaling, you know, I've got my world established and um and it didn't always include social media, you know? And so now I have to find ways to sort of keep up and catch up and, um, 
and yet kids today, you know, this is their world. This is their newsfeed, their media, their, um, their truth comes in, in this platform. And, um, so I'm just, you know, it's fascinating, but also a little mind boggling to me as well. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's so fascinating to me is this is a generational issue. Like you, you talk about Eric, right? So like, um, I don't know, you know, Rachel, maybe you can help me out here. Like what generation am I? I'm in like the sandwich generation of like three years between the millennials and, and um, I can't remember what they called us, but um, I'm in a weird spot in terms of like, I grew up before this stuff kind of took on, but live in a world where you've had to embrace it. And so I like, I think it's like 79 to 83. Um, we're the last generation to where you had, you know, this kind of sort of changing of the guard, if you will, um, where we can remember like having to, you know, learn cursive and mail a letter and like do all the things you used to do, but then have, you know, live in a world where you have to be technologically liter literate. And so it brings a different vantage point. And to Eric's point, um, I think the term that the, the technologists use now is, is digital nativists, right? So you grew up in a world where this was the only thing that you knew. And, and, you know, again, as someone who teaches neuropsychology, I think one of the things I've been playing with, and again, this is just me musing here, I don't have data on this, so caveat emptor. Um, I think that the human cortex, in, in terms of like trying to explain why some of the stuff has been going on that, that, that we've witnessed over the last two years, um, has been that I don't think maybe our brains have evolved in some ways, because you see all these stories, you know, about like, you know, X people believe in this or X people believe in that, or they, we, we do this study where we show them these fake headlines and it's like, you're like looking at them and you're like, well, I mean, how does someone fall for that? That's ridiculous. Um, but I think in some ways, like we have just been primed through evolutionary species history, like to trust whatever's in print and, and, you know, Twitter in some ways is presented to us, social media, Facebook posts, like whatever is presented to us in a way that's print. And so then that carries with us almost like the subconscious message of it's true. And so that's kind of a dangerous thing in terms of like, you're trying to explain like why these phenomena happen that we see. And, and I think in some ways, you know, that's just the way that our brains program. We haven't evolved to the point where we can get to a point where we can look at something in print and say, really do a deep dive and say, all right, what, what are the facts behind this? Let me unpackage it. Like, we see all these articles, right? About like, how do you, how do you protect yourself online? And how do you protect yourself from like looking at this? And it seems so straightforward, but the reality is, is a lot of people, including myself and, and most of us can't do it. And I think there's something much more deeper going on here. And I, and again, I think that that's the, you know, sort of like my jumping off point is, okay, what does that mean as these technologies now become the medium for which information is going to be presented in school psychology. And I think to, to Rachel's point about, you know, your interactions online, it's like, you know, you can follow the playbook in terms of trying to, to bias people and it just doesn't work. In fact, it actually has a recursive effect. And there's actually some really good literature on this in terms of, again, what I find so fascinating about this discussion is, you know, these online interactions seem to be a different social psychology than if we were talking in person. And, and if, 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 if Eric and I disagreed on an issue, I could ask him to present me his evidence. He could ask me for mine. And because we have that one-to-one -one interaction, like Eric can't run away or he'd look pretty foolish or I would too if I just ran away and said, I'm not looking at your stuff, right? 
but we can do that online. We can just, we can totally silo ourselves and censor ourselves into these balkanized places where we only see and we curate the messages that we want. And so I think a lot of people are probably thinking, well, what does that do with school psychology? But we see these things play out in these spaces, right? Whether it's like we said, profile analysis, science of reading. We saw it play out in the NAS listserv two days ago about you know social justice politics and someone's truth. And you know, it, it, it comes out on a daily basis. And, and I guess I think the message that I have is the, the, the sort of things that Steph and I, you know, have taught our students for decades you know, read a journal article and, and you'll be inoculated, that, that doesn't work anymore. And so, so how do we deal with this? And, and then that, that gets into the whole, like Eric, you know, we were talking offline about the replication crisis and how this plays into some of this stuff and, and some of the emerging online platforms for articles and preprints and things like that. And, and again, like you said, we go a hundred different directions with this. Um, but I just think school psychologists need to be prepared because it's here and 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 I fear we're not we're not really prepared like a lot of other, you know, people out there in disciplines to really deal with this. And when I think back to grad school, I remember explicitly um, being taught, you know, you consider all data points. That doesn't mean you give equal weight. You know, you don't fall into this egalitarian virus type of scenario where because it's a data point, like I have to treat it the same as this other data point, which is maybe, you know, uh, more more powerful for whatever reason. And it seems that, yeah, maybe in our, in our graduate courses that on a broader scale needs to be kind of woven throughout courses maybe that um, not not every book, <laughs> you know, that you see like peer reviewed journal. I mean, I know that we, we talk about that for sure, I think in grad school, but it's just that now yeah, we go out into the, the world as practitioners and we are bombarded with social media, with things that maybe don't have evidence and it, it is hard to kind of sort throw it and and eric youngstrom in terms of the evidence-based assessment movement talks about this you know he said one of the motivations in one of his articles can't remember which one it was but he talks about how you know one of the the, the biggest problems facing practitioners today is it, it's sort of like you know i go back to like romanitian's technology symptom and dream right so like there's there's always a flip side to everything right so the good side is we have access to more information today than we've ever had in our entire species history, right? So the question is, how do we filter through that though? And and um, you know, I think that that one of the issues is is like you said, Rachel, how are we preparing folks to live in this sort of this this multiplex, right? It, you know, we, we, I feel like, and again, and one of my shortcomings as a trainer has been, I've always like pursued it from like the traditional academic lens, which is you know, you read the books, you read the chapters, you read the articles, and you you look at the research methodology and you make your own determination. But now we have a whole other animal out there. And it's like, okay, well, how do you deal with how information is being filtered through there? And so it's a challenge. And, and um, you know, I, I don't have an answer for it. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of riffing in terms of like, I'm thinking of myself as a trainer, like, how do I deal with this next time I teach assessment next year in terms of like we go through the hierarchy of evidence and knowing that the vast majority of the folks that I'm teaching are probably going to look to these mediums for good or for bad for information. So how do I deal with that? And how do I, and how do we work through that and work through contemporary examples? We had a good question. Um, 
on Twitter, but it seems like, you know, there isn't a, there is, so the question I'm going to read it out um, for those of you who are listening. So what are suggestions to weed through Twitter feeds, Facebook groups, et cetera, um, to get to useful, accessible evidence-based practices? But it sounds like what you're saying is, I mean, there isn't, there isn't a set <laughs> um, formula to follow to this out. I mean, well, I think the, I think the biggest thing is you have to go in knowing. And again, I was totally naive to this when I first started interfacing in these spaces. And I think the biggest thing you have to go in is just a priori, sort of knowing that that the way that these sort of technologies operate. And so, uh, my biggest clue in was, you know, to Eric's point, like, why do I keep getting this particular you know topic in my feed? And I would look, and it was like. Well, that was from seven days ago. And, and then I would go back to the actual page and see there was a thousand, you know, threads that had already been posted after that. So, so I understand that, that, that your feed is being curated to try and get you to respond. And so it's based on the algorithms they use based on your response history, your likes and whatever. So if you're particularly opinionated about something, you have to sort of know going in that it's going to feed you information that's going to that's going to try to get you to have that I can't remember who said it, but an emotional response to something, right? And so we know when we go in emotionally responding, we're going to be predisposed to to already be primed not to accept any conflicting evidence, right? So I think I think just knowing that for me was a huge thing, right? So like when I interact on social media now, it's from a very different vantage point. It's like, I'm going into lurk. I'm going to see what people are talking about. I'm not going in like I originally did, like, you know, trying to interact with people and like, yes, you know, people have these viewpoints and we'll, you know, give them this information and, and everything will be cured. Um, if that's true or not, it, it, it doesn't work like that. So I think that's the biggest thing. I think the second thing is, is quite honestly, knowing that we talked about the barrier to entry issue before, and there's a lot of people interacting in these spaces. I think I've commented on this before. Like I've caught, um, you know, in, in, in spaces where you are supposed to be either a practitioner or a trainer. Um, and I've caught people applying to my grad program as an undergraduate. And I only know their name because I process their application. Um, there are parents, there are advocates, there are people that are lurking in these spaces that are not necessarily experts. And so again, knowing how these technologies operate um we just have to know that going in that again to rachel's point about the you know the fallacy of the egalitarian principle which is i think the actual word that willingham uses you know not everyone interacting in these spaces actually knows what they're talking about and that's one of the downsides of this right which is you don't know who's an expert and who's not or you know whoever conveys that title i, you know, I don't know how that works but the, the point is, is that anybody can come in and opine about stuff. And the problem with this is when you're confronted with that point of view, it's bloody difficult to figure out whether that's a hot take or that's based on a legitimate someone's, you know, search of the information. And this is the, the viewpoint that they have. And it's well-reasoned, it's well-researched. And so I think the biggest defense is just knowing that going in. And, and I'll just profess ignorance. I didn't know. Like, I, I had no clue going in. You know, I thought what I saw in my Twitter feeds and, and, and my Facebook feeds was live, was real. This was an active thread. You know, so it's always funny when I see the comments from people like, this thread's been dead for like a week. Like, why are you responding to this? You're violating like internet protocol. And it's like, well, I just got it like today. You know, it's like, 
and so just understanding that's what's going on. And so, like you said, I think Stefan was saying, maybe just, just taking a step back, doing your due diligence. Like if you see something that's emotionally provocative, probably go to that page and see if that's an actual active thread that's going on, or is this something that's being rehashed from the past? If so, then, then you kind of know going in with your blinders on, this is deliberately being sent to me to try and get an emotional reaction. It's not something that just someone posted today and I have to respond to. When I'm thinking about uh, Twitter and whatnot, I, I usually think immediately of practitioners um, because just that's what I'm surrounded with mostly. You know, most of us, I think, probably listening are practitioners. Um, and so I... I but yeah, you mentioned how uh, so academics, you know, going into this Twitter space and whatnot. And so, you know, it was exciting to, to follow um, all these different people and get kind of, I mean, you academic people are humans too and get pulled into it just as, as practitioners do. So typically, though, if, if there was an, a, a disagreement, you know, somebody published a paper, somebody else disagrees with the paper, there's kind of a formal, what, can, what does that process usually look like, like pre-Twitter compared to now with social media and whatnot? Has that accelerated things or had an impact on how like rebuttals or, um, you know, papers responding to other papers, how that winds up? <laughs> Stefan, I don't know if you want to take this one. Oh, sure. Um, so, so traditionally, if there was a disagreement or a difference of opinion or a difference in fact, um, you would have a response, and then the uh, the other academic would get a, a rejoinder. Um, sometimes um, folks take to social media, to Twitter, and use often almost ad hominem um, and and. And, and say things over and over again, as, as Ryan mentioned, and, and use that as a forum to uh, confront um, research. So, um, yeah. Yeah, and I think, I think the thing to, to understand is like when you have a disagreement with a fellow researcher, it's, 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 there was always that sort of formal sort of process by which if you disagree with published findings or something, you had to go through that journal and you had to, you had to either produce your own data and say this is, or or show the errors in their data analysis, and and you know, and and you know, we we've, we've done that at times um, where someone makes a conclusion from faulty premises, and we we have to sort of you know reverse engineer their experiment and show like why this didn't work, and and you know, but again, that's not just us contacting the journal and saying, oh man, this person pissed me off, and and I want to write a rejoinder. It's like you have to prove like to the editor and to the people that reviewed that paper that that what these individuals did, um, at least to their satisfaction, was probably something that was erroneous. Um, and, and then at that point, if, if the case is proven, then you, you, can, you actually get asked if you want to request a retraction, um, which which is, you know, it's like the academic death penalty. I mean, that's, you know, what we saw with the Wakefield paper and the anti-vaxxers, how well that works. Yeah. So we've had situations, um, of course, we said, hey, we, we don't want to go in the direction of retraction, even though in some cases it might have been justifiable. But, um, but yeah. But I think the difference is, Rachel, to your point is uh, now we're seeing with the rise of so-called you know, academic Twitter is, is more and more folks are just sort of bypassing that process and just going online and saying, well, screw these people. And, you know, they they 
you know, wrote a terrible paper and I don't know how this got published or whatever. I've even seen cases where people are starting to post reviews, blinded portions of blinded reviews online um, because their paper didn't get published, which, you know, I don't, I haven't really worked out what my feelings are on that, but it, it seems to me, you know, at least in some level to be a little bit self-serving. Um, I think every academic has had, you know, issues with the peer review process before and, and the review process and questioning whether it was fair, especially if you deal with contentious issues and, and, you know, it is what it is, but um, the, uh, you know, the fact that we're entering an age where people are, are unmasking themselves and unmasking reviewers and, and, you know, and in some cases it even gets into a bigger issue, which is something that Eric and I were talking about, you know, um, pre uh, podcast, which is the rise of, of these sort of under the guise of open science, these preprint archives uh, where people are posting articles um, that are supposed to be under review or in the review process. But these, these, these forums, like for instance, psych archive, you know, you get a DOI. I, I've seen people citing psych archive as a citation. And, and, you know, I really question whether or not some of these individuals, you know, are passing them around on the internet. It's like, these are, these are non, these are non accepted articles like these. In fact, in some cases, I know for a fact, and this has been documented in other fields like social and experimental psychology, these, some of these articles are not even sent out to review. They're just posted on the preprint site. And in some cases, you know, as vaunted media outlets like the New York Times have been caught just simply citing psych archive preprints as de facto evidence. And it turns out, you know, then once it gets, the article gets printed in terms of the, the newspaper publication or whatever, the traditional media publication, it turns out this article is, is, you know, foobar. It, it's completely, you know, irreconcilable. It's never going to be published, but then it's out there. And so we see this happen a lot. And, and I think one of the things about this new, this new information ecosystem we're entering into is once information gets out there, it's not like you can just walk it back. And so um, I'm sympathetic. I've written before about how I support some of the open science things. I'm, I'm less supportive about some of these kinds of networks where people can just put anything on a preprint archive, claim it's being reviewed, and then people are glomming onto them, doing a Google search, coming up with that article and saying, see, I saw this, this study and it shows X and people aren't even aware that that's, that could be potentially be rejected by every journal it's sent to. But yet it can be cited in people's site. I've seen it in reference lists now, Psych Archive, DOI, and it's like, that's a preprint. I mean, that's worse than citing a conference presentation. And um, it can be misleading to the uh, the public and to practitioners as well. I mean, so I, I, I almost think that our ethical codes and um, need to catch up to this practice at some point, or at least speak on it. I'm not saying it's unethical, but but we, we do need to consider um, these sort of uh, approaches. Yeah, and there's actually been documented cases where um, researchers that are sympathetic to various fringe movements, whether it be anti-vax or like whatever, have um, deliberately abused this system and have put their put their articles on these preprint sites, knowing full well that they're not going to get accepted in, in any kind of legitimate publication and with the sole purpose of, of sort of gaming the system. 
And so again, I think it gets in the back to everything we've talked about. If that's the way things are being done, it's like, how do you, how do you deal with that? It's, um, and yeah. it actually foments a distrust in science, um, which is a problem in and of itself. Above and beyond, in, in our uh, sort of social science arena, where, where you're going to find um, evidence for and against, sometimes, sometimes in some fields and some disciplines, and that's why we, we give equal credence to, um, well, this study came out this way and, the, and this came out a different way. Well, um, you know, so, so it lends itself to that sort of thinking. Yeah, and it, it makes me think with the pandemic and all, uh, you know, floating around social media, this doctor says that masks will lower your oxygen and you'll die. And then this doctor is like, has his YouTube channel that's saying this and you see all these people who <laughs> are spreading this, but it's, it's, it's more readily accessible than, you know, the peer reviewed journal article that's behind the paywall and, and things like that. And so it kind of spins, spins itself. And then, like you said, once it's out there, it's out there and Wakefield and the anti-vax and whatnot is, is just a perfect example because that has caused tremendous harm to so many um, and continues yeah, absolutely. to. And he's, still, and he's still on the uh, speaker circuit as well. Yeah, and I, I think Rachel, you bring a, a you know really interesting point in terms of contemporary stuff we're dealing with, right? I mean, I don't make to mean you know, I don't mean to make light of the issue, but I mean, I I sort of chuckle whenever I go onto some of these forums and someone in school psychology is claiming to be the the COVID nineteen whisperer in terms of like teleassessment, and I'm like, you know what training did you get in this? Like, was there a program that you went to where they like trained you in like how to deal with the pandemic and how to do teleassessment at scale. And that was like the chief motivation, um, you know, for our article that we wrote back, it seems like, you know, 15 years ago. But I mean, that was like when I was sitting up here drinking bourbon at like three in the morning, like, you know, having existential thoughts about the end of mankind. I was like seeing this kind of advice just proliferate out there. And I was like, well, who appointed this person the expert on pandemic area response to teleassessment in school psychology? It's like, I, I don't have any training in that. I don't know what to tell my students. My students were like contacting me, sending me emails like, Ryan, what do we do? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't know how you adapt to this new technology. I don't know how you, you satisfy these legal regulations that have been enforced since the 1960s, 1970s. And, and in some cases, there's been no response from prevailing agencies about how they're going to accommodate during this time. So I think to me, that's a really interesting example of where it's so easy in this age for someone to brand themselves an expert in almost anything and put up a web page and then, you know, get on the speaker circuit. I was reading, you know, uh, an article in a newspaper where they were talking about how the number one um, thing in terms of uh, mainstream media, um, however you define that, which is how do they find so-called experts to give quotes or whatever, or do an interview on an article, they go on Twitter and they, and they figure out who's posting on a topic and they search them out and whatever. So if you want to be the COVID-19 whisperer, just set up a, a Twitter account and market yourself as some assessment guru. And you're sure enough to find someone that's like you said, going to quote you about how a district should practice and, and again, have they ever worked as a school psychologist? Do they understand all these myriad issues that we're dealing with and having to confront and 
And I really have a lot of questions with that. Again, it, it's, it's why I think some of the most valuable experience that I ever had was, you know, my time in practice in terms of being a trainer. Now it's like, you sort of like look at certain things and you go, well, you know, I've worked in a school that dog doesn't hunt. It's like, I mean, but you see people that have this perspective. And so I feel like in some ways, all of this kind of comes together and, and COVID in some ways is like the perfect animal in terms of like just amplifying a lot of this stuff because we're all searching for information. We're in a vacuum. We don't know what to do. You know, I, I was in the MHS thing the other day and like the number one comment, a lot of the chats was, uh, you know, get, get to what do we do in, in August? Like, what do we do in August? Like when we get back to normal and we have this backlog of assessments and, and we're just supposed to like walk into a school and just be normal. How do we deal with learning loss? How do we deal with this? How do we deal with that? And you just see, you know, there, I mean, to me, what frustrates me as a school psychologist is just the lack of sort of understanding of all these issues. And it's not just COVID, but it gets into, you know, a lot of issues, you know, science of reading, like whatever it's like, you know, whether I embrace this intervention program that is, is research vetted, but it's like, okay, they had 15 interventionists. They paid for in a grant that I'm trying to like implement my school district. And there's no way that's ever going to be scalable. So, you know, what do I do with that? You know, it's like half, you know, I might get into a can of hot worms here, but whatever. I mean, I would venture to say 75% of the stuff that I read in school psychology over the last three to five years I just throw in the trash. Like it, 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 it's, it has no, as a former practitioner, it's like, I'm like, this is never going to happen in school. Yeah. Sometimes there is a disconnect, an absolute disconnect between the uh, academic school psychologists and the practitioners. Uh, I mean, so despite calls for paradigm changes, this and paradigm changes that, which I've heard over the past 30 years, I mean, what we're doing is assessment and, um, and anyway, that's, that's, Yeah, it just speaks to me that there's so much to vet now that we, you know, our, our doors are open to so much more. Um, it There's just so much more to vet through and, and figure out what's good and what's not. And, and I suppose if I'm going to the Internet for research, I really probably shouldn't be going to Twitter or Facebook for that. I should be going to, you know, uh, journals, right, or... or um, published authors who are, who, you know, who are peer reviewed and, and asking for their work, or um, if I don't have access, you know, to uh, journal publications, that sort of thing. But, um, you know, I think, I think the thing is, is we have to understand and when I, I've only done one workshop on this, but um, when I talked about the replication crisis, I think there's a, there's a, there's sort of a fundamental misunderstanding and, and part of the blame lies with us, right? So when we teach, you know, methods and how to be an evidence-based practitioner and all this stuff. Like you said, Eric, we say, go to the literature and just, you know, read this article and I'll tell you everything you need to know. Um, one of the things that's really been sort of disarming for me in reading this literature has been understanding that any article that you see, and again, it's a slippery slope, right? Like we don't want to paint this picture that science doesn't work or any of that kind of stuff, but we have to understand that any article is just a data point in sort of a theoretical distribution of all possible studies that can be done on this issue. And for some reason, this particular article was published. So we can't accept an article as being de facto truth. 
Because the reality is like, and I'll make a really easy example for practitioners to understand. When you come across an article or you see someone tweeting about this behavioral intervention or reading intervention, you know, had significant effects and it's the, it's the bee's knees and you should adopt this in your school district, right? You need to be mindful that that's one article that was published and there are likely 15, 20, 25 articles out there that were not published examining the very same issue that maybe show no effects or, um, you know, diluted effects. And it would change your opinion about how you would evaluate that information. And so if you were to see the whole distribution of studies, you might have a different take on, you know, working from an evidence-based perspective, whether this is something that I should recommend to work with, you know, Sally come Monday morning. And, and so I think that's the barrier is getting people to accept that nuance. And quite frankly, I think a lot of researchers don't understand that nuance, right? So they do this study and it's like statistically significant effects. And it's like, okay, well, what is the totality of this effect in the hypothetical distribution of every study that could be done on this topic? And if it's only that 10 of the 80 studies would be significant, but those 10 studies were published, and this is what gets into the replication crisis stuff, right? When have you read a journal article where there was no effects? Never. So to, to you know, Sterling's point from 1959, this has been something that's been going on in psychology since the beginning of the profession. So if that's the reality, then you're left to accept, if you accept that as being true, that psycho academic psychologists, for some reason, despite all of the, the missteps that we've had in our profession, right, have an unprecedented level of success in terms of being able to conceptualize things that work in the real world and prove those things. Well, you can't prove anything, but but provide evidence those things are, are likely effectual for particular subgroups. And that just, you know, when you take that sort of 30,000 foot view, whether you're a practitioner or you're an academic, you just go, well, that can't be the case. So what is all the other, inf where's all the other information? Where is that? And that's when we get into the file drawer issues and all that kind of stuff. But um, th that's the danger in sort of relying on any particular study as sort of prima facie evidence that something is the bee's knees in our profession or any profession. And so what I fear is, is that this sort of information ecosystem is sort of promoting that kind of thinking in terms of a study gets published, everyone tweets about it. We as practitioners then go out and say, well, I saw this and this is cool. Like, let's do this. And it's not really thinking through all those nuances. And again, I'm not blaming practitioners at all. Um, academics are just as guilty of this because they do the same thing. And in particular, as Stefan noted, like when you have a particular, you know, interest in this, whether it's your thing or, you know, you're getting paid for it or something. I mean, obviously that brings in a whole other can of worms. But I think if we view it from that perspective um, and, and what I would encourage people is you should look at every single study that you come across or tweet or whatever referencing a study as preliminary evidence at best. Like maybe there's something there, but I need to do a deeper dive and really get in there and kind of look at what they were looking at. And I was so heartened to see in this MHS chat, by the way, that there were a number of practitioners when a particular study was referenced that said this sample size is hokum. 
it's 104 students over an age group of three to like 21. There's no way that's going to replicate in any particular local sample that I were to try and take this test or this intervention to. I'm likely to get just as many studies that say this thing doesn't work as I am that don't, that do. And so, again, I think that's the sort of way we have to approach this. And I just worry that our technologies are sort of conspiring against us in some way to where it's much easier just to say, well, that was tweeted 17 times or that was on someone's page or that was on the NASP listservs and therefore it must be factual. And, and again, you know, this is a whole nother element of literacy, information literacy that I think we have to encourage in training programs because, you know, I mean, I'm coming to this, you know, 15 years into the game and it's like, whoa, there's this whole other side of things that I didn't understand. So I feel like there's a lot of misunderstanding. I feel like I, and I'm sure other people do it too, when I get into, you know, oh, I disagree with that on Facebook. So what do I do? And like, I don't just, oh, I disagree, but I go to, you know, Google Scholar, or I go and I search my thing. And then you find like studies that support, <laughs> that support what you think. Oh, and you come to one that maybe doesn't say it quite right. So, oh, I'm going to keep looking until I find the study that shows what I think to be, to be true. Well, not just the whole confirmation bias, right? Yes. We have so many journals now. We have so many people doing work in certain areas that I would venture to argue that, that in almost any area, you could find, you know, evidence for or against whatever position point you want to articulate in any public forum. And so, again, am I am I looking at the totality of the evidence or am I only looking for the things that, that confirm what I already believe to be true? And I've been guilty of this, too. I mean, when I when I go and search for something, it's like I'll type in certain search terms or like whatever, and it's like deliberately designed to curate what I'm trying to say in certain respects. And it, it takes a lot of hard work to take that that 30,000 foot viewpoint. And, and it takes an attitude of I have to accept that I could be wrong. Right. Like this intervention or whatever that I really believe in that I've used could not end up working out. And even though I've invested sunk cost in this, I have to accept that. But again, I think when we teach folks to search and look for things, you know, and, and I don't know the answer to that because quite honestly, I've read probably 15 books in the last three weeks about, you know, evidence-based practice. And they're all like, just search the literature. And you'll find an article. And, you know, that's truth. And it's like, it's way more complicated than that. And, and I think if we just, again, um, I think in our article, Stefan kind of talked about Pratt Canis and just this idea of just being a little bit more skeptical. Again, that has negative connotations, but that doesn't mean being cynical. You know, cynical means like you just don't accept something no matter what's presented to you. Skeptical is I'm going to take a preliminary viewpoint on something, but I want to see more data. I want to do a little bit more work on this. I want to make my own informed decision. I'm not going to just go off one article. I'm going to deliberately search for, is there a countering viewpoint to this? And, and what is and what is that view? Um, and I think the most instructive advice that I ever got in grad school in my EDS program was from a professor that said, when I, when I was adamantly for a thing, and this professor said, have you read the other side? Do you understand their arguments? Have you read the literature that they're citing? And if you haven't done that, then... You know, you really don't understand your argument.
I've got a lot of thoughts, but I know we're, <laughs> we're running out of time. So I, I'm going to um, pull myself back a little bit. But I was, you know, throughout that, I was when we were talking about preprints and whatnot, um, ResearchGate came to mind because I get little notifications that so-and-so has posted a preprint. And so, like, I guess I'm guilty of that. Or is that something that people take stuff down when? Is that archived in a similar way to um, the psych archive that you were referencing? Well, you can post anything on ResearchGate. There's no barrier. I can list anything I want as an article or, you know, claim that it's been peer reviewed. It's going to be published in this journal. I just click and I hit a button. So, um, again, as a, as a vehicle for getting information out there, it's great. I mean, I get emails, getting one right now from someone requesting an article on ResearchGate. That's awesome. But just understanding that, you know, just just because it's put up online doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that it's gone through, you know, the appropriate vetting circles. And um, in particular, when you see these preprints and stuff, um, just know in particular with preprints, that is necessarily something that has not gone through the peer review process. That is just something that Ryan put up on a website and it could be a legitimate attempt at a manuscript that was sent into a journal and is currently being reviewed, or it could be, this is my, you know, I was just coming across something from Paul Meal the other day where he like wrote like a, you know, Unabomber Street at the end of his career. And it was like, you know, this is my sumo. Like I can say whatever I want now. So I'm just going to put it on the internet. Um, and, and in some ways these platforms kind of mask those distinctions. So, um, you know, again, if you're asking for something and it says a preprint, uh, you know, you know, you can't, I mean, I mean, you could ask, you know, where has it been sent in, but just verifying, has this actually been sent in for peer review someplace? Um, and just know that, that if you cite that or you're quoting from it or you're passing it around, um, that is the pre-accepted version of, of whatever may be accepted. So, you know, again, when we send papers in, they go through, you know, and sometimes three, four five rounds of reviews and uh, the, the final published document is often a lot different than, than what is sent in originally. Um, there are some conclusions that the reviewers say, you haven't made the case, you got to get rid of those. Um, there's, there's some methodological issues where they say, you know, reading this paper, I like this point, but, you know, your, your evidence isn't, isn't particularly compelling on this issue. So go back and do these analyses or you made a mistake here and, I still think it's publishable, but you have to you have to correct it. Otherwise, we're not gonna we're not gonna accept it. And reviewers are people too. I mean, they make mistakes and have their own biases. So that's a whole nother. Just because it's uh, in a peer review journal doesn't again mean that it's yeah. The peer review process is not infallible by any stretch. Look at the uh, the Wakefield article as an example, right? Published in the Venerable Lancet, um, subsequently retracted, but but yeah. And again, it's a slippery slope, right? Because you don't want to, there's a fear, I think that, and, and we've seen this in some circles where if you raise these nuanced discussions, then you're almost giving like fodder for, you know, the, the anti-science people to say, well, see, Ryan said this, so therefore science is broken. So don't trust in the process. Um, like I said, I'm sympathetic to a lot of the open science stuff. But at the same time, we also have to recognize that sometimes the card can get out, you know, before the horse. And, and you know, we've seen a lot of, you know, it, you know, examples of that in psychology throughout our history. Um, you know, the example I always give in class is, you know, someone won the Nobel Prize for doing frontal lobotomies, right? I mean, um, 
So it wasn't until, you know, 10, 15 years later, we realized it's probably not a good idea to do that. Um, that doesn't mean science is broken, but I think your point, Rachel, and it's a really, really good point. Um, and one of the quotes that I was coming across in terms of the post-truth stuff is, is, is knowledge is, is the accepted, I can't remember what the wording is exactly, but it was like the accepted, you know, accepted facts that, that reduce uncertainty. And so the idea that they have to be filtered through a social lens, you know, necessarily tells us that this whole process is a social endeavor. And so there's no such thing as perfection. But the reality is, I think we have to think about with that in mind, you know, is information being vetted, right? Like if Ryan puts up a website and puts whatever the heck I want onto on there, you know, I could say whatever profound statements I want, but the reality is that's just my opinion. And, and I could say I'm an expert in, you know, underwater basket weaving, even though I've never spent any time doing that endeavor. But the reality is you can convince at least one person that I'm an expert in underwater basket weaving, right? And I could send the social network analysis, right? So there's always, and that's the danger of when you accept every, you know, the sort of egalitarian principle as we know through these kind of information ecosystems, you can get one out of a hundred to believe in just about anything. And so if that one person then distributes knowledge to another person, distributes knowledge to another person, um, there's going to be that sort of barrier you're facing to try and inoculate folks against doing bad things. And I just don't know how we, we penetrate that. Um, you know, just saying, read a journal article. Well, how do I know that article gets to that network? Um, and and that's, that's sort of the system that we're in now. The optimism that you always bring to all our podcasts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's super interesting, though, and I think it's... But at, the same, but at the same time, if we understand the technology, we can also reverse engineer it to, like, do the good things that we want to do. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, I think it's something It needs to be a conversation, I think, and people need to, to be aware, like you said, just having the knowledge going into it that, you know, these things are not definite things that these you know there's stuff going on kind of behind the scenes and being skeptical and um all of that but um eric anything else um do you i want to give you a chance to <laughs> anything else you want to hit on or no, i know we're, we're out of time so <laughs> great great questions and and discussion i there's just so much to think about but i i think i love that distinction between skepticism and cynicism um and i just think we have to think right this is you can't just blindly follow you know the facebook trail or mm -hmm. the uh twitter trail or something you know think through yeah. use our common sense read think ask questions and and discussions you know uh, i've benefited so much just from uh talking at nasp with you ryan and you know talking on the podcast with both of you and um you know there's just like you said ryan you know there's no um it's a very different animal when you're talking to somebody in person than when you just disagree on social media. You know, I, I learn an awful lot from um, discussions with people and discussions with people who are doing things, you know, that are different from what I do in the same field. So, um, you know, keeping an open mind, but um, keeping it skeptical too is, is good. Asking lots of questions and following, you know, well, I think too. Yeah. I mean, we've had these discussions in NASP and it's like, you know, 
I think the thing that a lot of people don't realize, I get this comment all the time is like, oh, they'll, they'll throw a name out there and they'll be like, well, what you do is diametrically opposed to that person. I wonder like what your interactions are with them. Like we have delightful conversations. We have beers. Like it's, it's not as antagonistic as you see online. It's, you know, there are, there are certain issues where you just have to, you know, say, I have a different viewpoint on this. They have a different viewpoint on this. Like, I'm not, we're not going to come to an agreement on that. But what I find is there's a lot more that we agree on in our field than, than we disagree with. And I think that I've always found that useful as sort of the starting point for having these conversations. Awesome. So um, before uh, I'm going to read our, our little sponsorship here, um, but I wanted to ask before we um, uh, kind of closed off the conversation too, what, what papers are, are both of you working on right now? And both, I know you both publish a lot, anything that kind of that might be coming out long-term or short-term that uh, we should keep our eyes out for? Nothing. <laughs> Stephanie, I was going to let you jump in. <laughs> You're going to let me jump into this one? Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, the publishing world, publishing kind of has its ebbs and flows, right? Right now we're kind of, uh, at least I'm in a down phase right now, just coming off the semester and, and uh, so, uh, so that's where I'm at. You know, we had a fairly productive year. COVID was great um, for our uh, creativity, I think. Um, but right now we're kind of um, just in a, a thoughtful phase. Or at least I am. We have uh, we have two papers in review that, that deal with some of this stuff. Um, we recently published an article in Canadian Journal of School Psychology that kind of looked at the textbooks issue in terms of where people are getting information and like what's in the textbooks and comparing that to the, the empirically reviewed literature and some discrepancies, some consistencies. Um, was actually really kind of heartened to see that, that Sattler um, – you know, actually provided somewhat of a balanced take on on some of the issues that have, have become controversial over the last 20 years, you know, in particular with like subtest analysis and scatter analysis and things like that. So um, there, there's some movement. Um, but again, you know, one of the things we've learned is the, the progress in psychology is often very, very fickle. So, <laughs> um, But, you know, we're, we're kind of ruminating on some some projects in terms of we got some stuff with um, we're working with the folks at Johns Hopkins. Um, we got a clinical data set of 5,000 kids. We've just published a measurement and variance study of the WIS-5. And so there's a lot of stuff we can do with that in terms of diagnostic decision-making and, and getting into the finer details of, of how folks are taking actual data that they get in practice and, and what's kind of going on there. Um, I think lastly, Katie Mocky and I have a study that was recently published. We're working on something else related to that in terms of you know, data presentation, when you get information, how do you weight it? And it kind of dovetails into like diagnostic decision-making and, and how we do things as actual practitioners. Very cool. All right. So um, I wanted to thank um, our sponsor tonight too. Um, uh, so uh, Med Travelers for the continued support of school psychologists nationwide. Uh, as a leader of school staffing, uh, the genuine care benefits and guidance that MedStar Travelers demonstrates with school psychologists is the mark of a true partner in career success. To learn more about Med Travelers and discover the ways they can help you succeed in your school, psych school psychology career, visit medtravelers.com slash school psyched. Um, so yeah, and I know that we have um, an exciting episode coming up tomorrow, Eric. Just real quick, do you want to talk about that? I know Rebecca is just beside herself with sure. excitement. 
Yeah, we have a unique opportunity to speak with Dr. Stephen Hayes, the founder of ACT uh, Therapy. And um, he's just done a lot in in um, the therapeutic world. And he's a really interesting person to speak with, I think, both philosophically as well as psychologically. Um, if you've ever heard him speak or um, or looked at ACT, um, the ACT matrix and some of the, the therapeutic uh, approaches through that um, that approach. So uh, he's fascinating. So I'm excited to talk with him. That's tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern time. So I know it's a little um, off our typical schedule, but he was available and we said, let's do it. So uh, it should be really interesting. And of course, it'll be archived on um, YouTube as well as uh, iTunes or wherever you get your, your podcast. So, um, so check it out either live or um, when it's archived. But thank you so much, uh, Ryan and Stefan. It's always a pleasure to speak with both of you and uh, just find it um, so interesting to hear what you what you both have to say. Hey, you guys are like the uh, Joe Rogans of uh, school psychology. So so good job with your podcast there. Thank you.